If you have your Bible with you, you can open to Leviticus chapter 10. Before we start in on the passage for this morning, though, I just wanted to backtrack a little bit. If you were not here last week, um, we mentioned in our time of, uh, in Leviticus 8 and 9 that we were going to um, insert into our service order a prayer of uh, confession and assurance of pardon. The reason that we, uh, that we did that was, uh, was because of what we see in Leviticus 9. So just by way of reminder, even if you were here last week, you may not, uh, you may not remember. Uh, and uh, if you weren't here, you certainly don't remember. Uh, so if you look at the end of Leviticus 9, let me just point out uh, two things briefly before we start in on chapter 10. Starting at verse 22, Leviticus 9:22, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. There seems to be an intentional order that goes on there. Sin offering, burnt offering, peace offering. The sin offering, obviously, a sacrifice acknowledging the sinfulness of the people and their need for pardon and for forgiveness. The burnt offering being expression of their devotion and consecration to the Lord. The, the God who has bought us and who has forgiven us is the God to whom we owe everything, and so we, we give our lives to him. And then the peace offerings, this is what the people enjoy as sort of the, the, the culmination of this sacrificial procedure. We know that because of pardon, we know that because we belong to the Lord that we have peace with him. And so what we want to do as best we can in our services is to reflect sort of the, the full-bodied nature of worship as we see it in scriptures. Uh, that's not to say that we can't uh, insert or uh, switch out different kinds of prayers from time to time, but we thought it would be appropriate at least through our time in Leviticus um, to pattern our worship at least in some small way off of what we see here. Um, so that uh, we start our service with the call to worship just as Leviticus starts. The Lord called to Moses and said, right? He's calling, inviting his people to come near by the way of the sacrifice that he's provided. Because of those sacrifices, they can come near. They can enjoy peace with God. And this is part of what we're celebrating in our prayer, in our singing, hopefully even in our preaching of the word. The last thing that I would point out to you is something that we didn't mention at all last week, but it's too good not to uh, draw our attention to it. At the very end of chapter 9, if you look in verse 24, 924, then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. They shouted, and they fell on their faces. What, what kind of a shout do you think that would be? Okay. Yeah, somebody said joy. Some people said fear. All right, maybe a hallelujah, right? Must have been a, a, pretty, a pretty stark, arresting sight for fire to come out and consume the sacrifice on the altar. Here's the interesting thing about this. The, the word that's used there for shout occurs multiple times throughout the Old Testament. Almost, and 
I, I can't remember, I can't remember specifically, so, so I don't want to be too bold in saying this, but, so I'll say it this way. I won't say every time, but almost every single time that that word for shout is used in a worship context, specifically, uh, specifically in the Psalms, it's always in a context of people shouting for joy. But notice, they shout for joy, if that's what's being implied here, probably because of seeing that the Lord has accepted their offering, that the Lord has come and taken up residence with the people, that He is welcoming them in through the work of their priest and through the sacrifices that He's provided for them. They shout for joy, and yet they fall on their faces. The best kind of Christian worship is not cheap, trivial, and trite. If we could take a cue from Leviticus 9.24, we might say that the best kind of worship that God's people offer to Him is one of joyful reverence. There is, as Lewis says in one of his great lines from the Narnia series, there is a kind of joy and happiness that makes one serious. It's too good to waste on jokes. Part of my prayer, my heart, my mind is wanting to have more of that spirit myself, not to take God so lightly, but to consider the full weight of his glory, to do so with reverence and awe, and at the same time to do that mixed with joy as I stand amazed at the fact that I'm allowed to come and worship him. Sinful, fallen person that I am. Leviticus chapter 10. We're going to read 11 verses. That'll be our focus this morning. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Moses called also to Mishael and Elsaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, got to love these names, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them still in their tunics, that is, their priestly garments, to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and that he will not become wrathful against the, all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die. For the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. The Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, 
Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, renew in us by the power of your word as your spirit works some greater sense of your holiness and the privilege that is ours to come and to worship you in prayer, in song, in the reading and meditating of your word. That we not take this privilege lightly as we consider the God whom we worship in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So, if Leviticus 8 and 9 carries with it the idea that God sanctifies a priest for his people, right? that's what, that was the two chapters that we looked at last week. God has, in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, outlined, provided for his people, the sacrifices which will make it possible for them to approach God. But part of the sinfulness of God's people means that even when you come by way of sacrifice, you are not even qualified to present the sacrifice yourself. A priest must do that for you. There must be a go-between between you and the Lord. So for all of the sacrifices that you have in the first seven chapters, if you don't have a priest and a priesthood in chapters 8 and 9 to offer those sacrifices, it does you no good. The, the sacrifices will not be accepted. Only one who has been appointed by the Lord, who has been called to that service, has been permitted to offer up those kinds of sacrifices. So the Lord sanctifies, sets apart, and makes holy Aaron and his sons for the benefit of the people. I think part of the twist in chapter 10 is that you see something of this reverse, albeit in a negative way. That chapter 10 reminds us that, in this, that just as God sanctifies a priest for his people, a priest is meant to sanctify God before the people. Right? But hear, hear what we're saying there. Sanctify God before the people. The priest does not make God holy, but he presents God as holy to the people. So part of the ministry of the priest was enabling unholy people to draw near to God. And as he did that, to display in the ritual acts, in the sacrifices, in the anointings, in the washings, and so on and so forth, that the reason this must be done is because God is holy. The priest himself represented in some way, both in his position, his service, his ministry, his actions, the holiness of God. So not only does God sanctify a priest for his people, but the priest then in turn serves to remind the people of the holiness of God. That is on full display in chapter 10, but in a tragic way. Two main points that we want to consider here before we reach a third which is to say this, number one, as we consider that all of the Old Testament, even Leviticus, points us to Christ, we want to consider, number one, that we have a priest who has secured for us unending blessing in life. We have a priest who has secured for us unending blessing in life. 
And number two, we have a priest to direct us in the way of holiness. We have a priest to direct us in the way of holiness. That will lead us to a third point, depending on how much time we have, which is to say, when you look in the New Testament, this priestly language that is used of Christ is also then appropriated and shared with Christ's people. Just as Christ is the supreme one and only high priest, God now under Christ has made us a kingdom or an assembly of priests, and that means something about the way that we live in the world around us. So number one, we have a priest who has secured unending blessing in life. One of, the, one of the very important things that you need to see here in these first two verses is that for all of the good and the exciting and blessing that comes in chapters 8 and 9, for the, for the big dramatic payoff at the end of chapter 9 where Aaron pronounces a blessing on the people because he's done all that the Lord has commanded him to do for the people. He blesses them with a word that acknowledges the fact that God is with them and receiving them, and then God makes that visibly apparent by sending fire out to consume the offering to show His acceptance. All of that, that buildup, here is what all of this has been leading to, all of that is almost undone before we even get to the next day. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, the main point or the way that it works in the development of the Leviticus storyline is to show the undoing of everything that's been done in chapter 8 and 9. Let me, let me show you how. In chapters 8 and 9, almost every paragraph in chapters 8 and 9 ends with some statement like, thus they did as the Lord commanded Moses or they did just as the Lord commanded. All through chapters 8 and 9, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. Do you see what happens in 10.1? Nadab and Abihu take some of these priestly elements, their incense plate or pan, the incense itself, they go in to offer this fire before the Lord. But notice at the end of verse 1, which he had not commanded. At the end of chapter 9, fire comes out and consumes the offering on the altar. In verse 2 of chapter 10, fire comes out from the Lord and consumes the priests. There's, by the way, there's no mistaking this in the Old Testament. The, the phrase that's used in, in 924 about fire coming out and consuming, in 924 and 10.2, fire coming out and consuming, verbatim phrases in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament. The, we are to see that this is a mirror image just in disastrous ways. God's fire consuming the offering to show his acceptance. God consuming the priest to show his rejection. 9.24 ends with the people shouting. 
presumably in praise, in exclamation of what it is that has just happened, whereas in 10.3, Aaron has to stand silent. Do you see how 10.1 through 2 is a reversal of everything that's happened in 8 and 9, especially in the dramatic climax of chapter 9? It reverses everything. Here's the reason why that is a problem. Because it's a reminder of the fact that even as good and as gracious as what God is in providing a way for His people to come to Him, it does not preclude the fact that the sin of the people can wreck and ruin all of the good things that God has given. Keep in mind, part of, what this, part of what makes this so troubling is the central role that the priest plays. If you don't have a priest to receive the sacrifice that you bring, to offer it up on the altar to the Lord, there is no offering or sacrifice that the Lord will receive from your hands. It has to be offered up through the priest. And if there is no priest because of their sin and disobedience and because God has consumed them in his wrath, you are left without a way to meet with God. This happens more than likely within a 24-hour span of time. It may have even happened on the very same day of 924. Where's the security? Where's the assurance? Where's the confidence that you can have in this system with these kinds of men representing you? You understand that part of what this indicates is that every day when you go to bed, let's say you had a good day going to the tabernacle or later going to the temple, you worshiped, you prayed, you brought the sacrifice, the priest took it, he offered it up. At least somewhere lurking in the back of your mind must be the question, well, I hope God really accepted that. Because I really hope that that priest was on top of his game today when I brought my sacrifice to the Lord to be accepted. Because if the priest was not going to be accepted by the Lord, neither was your offering. Or you could get to the end of a day. Let's say you had a good day of worship going into the presence of the Lord. You get to the end of the day and you say, man, I'm glad that was a good day, but you have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. Do you feel that tension? Do you see it? That on the one hand, God has done something good and gracious for sinful people, and yet the tension remains precisely because His people are so sinful and prone to disobedience. We can't ultimately be safe and secure and confident that the blessing that He's given us will remain. We need someone better. We need Christ. 
Hold your place here. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Start with me at verse 26. Hebrews 7, 26 through 8, 2. Hebrews 7, 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, like Nadab and Abihu, like Aaron. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. And then don't stop. 8.1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. If you have Christ as your high priest, you never need to fear or worry that you will not be accepted in the presence of God. Never. If your approach to God is through Jesus Christ, His work, His ministry, His sacrifice counts for you, and you can come anytime at all times. And one of the reasons that we know that our security in Christ is just that, secure, is because of what Hebrews tells us. The fact that the old covenant priests, like Aaron, like Nadab and Abihu, like all the others, the fact that the Old Testament priests had to get up every day and go through the rote and the repetition of the sacrifices was itself an indication that the people were never yet quite secure. There was always more work to be done. What does Christ do when he offers his once-for-all sacrifice? He ascends into the throne room of God, and he sits never to stand and work again. You can leave this room today, and you can say something like, I hope you don't, but you could say this, you could say something like, that sacrifice of praise that I offered today was below par. It was below average. And your sacrifice of praise has been accepted to the Lord nonetheless because Christ has offered it up on your behalf. Your prayers, as sporadic, as shallow, 
or as imperfect or as confused as what they may be, every single one carried into the throne room by Christ who takes your weak and feeble prayers and perfects them and purifies them, who implants his spirit in your heart so that even when you don't know how to pray in line with the will of God, the spirit himself intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words, all because of the work, the finished work of your high priest, Jesus Christ. The danger, the uncertainty that we see in Leviticus 10, that what was meant to, a, meant to be a blessing can quickly be turned into a curse. What was meant to lead to life can quickly lead to death. All of that is undone once and for all in Christ. There is nothing now for God's people but unending blessing and life. Number two, and this will come in two parts. Not only do we have a high priest who has secured unending blessing and life for us, but we have a high priest who directs us in the way of holiness. One of the reasons that you know or that we know that the danger here in the, first, in the opening verses of chapter 10 is not merely the danger that presents itself to the priest, right? I mean, Priestly work is, and when you look at this, is dangerous work. If you don't do exactly what God has told you to do, if you don't approach Him in perfect obedience, you may likely lose your life. Right? Dangerous for the priest. The amazing thing here, though, is that for all of the danger and destruction that threatens the priest when he steps into his role and engages in his work in ministry, when you go through verses 3 and following, the priest in some shape or form remains, the, remains something like a focus, but only in a secondary way. It's what the priest is doing and how that affects the people. Here, look, verse 3. In verses 3 through 11, what we see is, is that the priest was given to demonstrate God's holiness by the way that he lived, by his conduct, and by the way that he taught, by his words. So verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And notice, and before all the people... I will be honored. Or if you have the ESV, it might say, I will be glorified. Because of the way that, that little poetic phrases work, I think, in parallel, the, the, those who come near me, that first line, I will be treated as holy, I think those who come near me, he's referring to the priests. For the priests who approach me to do this work, I will be treated as holy. That's the problem with Nadab and Abihu. They, in their disobedience, did not treat the Lord holy. They treated him as if they could approach him on their own terms. But before all the people, 
I will be honored. In other words, if the priest himself does not honor, does not glorify, does not make God look holy in the sight of the people, why would the people consider God to be holy? One of the reasons, then, that God responds or reacts so strongly to Nadab and Abihu's disobedience is because of their unique position. Their disobedience runs the risk of corrupting God's people so that they lose sight of God's holiness. Go a little bit further. Verse 6, Moses says to Aaron... And to his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and that he, that is God, will not become wrathful against whom? Against all the congregation. Do you hear what's being said there? Aaron has just lost his two oldest sons. In a split second. Because they did not treat God as holy. And God's instruction to Aaron and to his remaining sons through Moses is, or Aaron, you cannot mourn the death of your sons. You cannot accompany the people outside of the camp to bury your sons. You stay here. Does that seem just a little severe to anyone else? Why would God say that? Why would Aaron not be able to do the thing that any loving father would long to do in a tragedy like that, to mourn and to grieve. Tragically, it seems that the Lord is trying to teach His people a lesson, a very painful lesson, but one which needs to be learned nevertheless. The people don't need to find themselves in a situation where when they look at Aaron and they see Aaron wailing and crying and moaning and groaning, Aaron walking out singing funeral songs with the funeral procession to go out and bury the son. The last thing that the people need is for them to think that their high priest sides with the one who has been judged for disobedience rather than siding with God himself. In other words, part of what it means to treat God as holy is to acknowledge and live in such a way that God's honor and glory transcends or trumps any honor or glory that you would give even to those closest to you. This can be a bitter pill. Because let's be honest, in, to, in, in today's culture, in today's society, in, in the spirit of the age that infects and infests so much of life, 
thinking particularly of parents and grandparents, or maybe even brothers and sisters, I don't know. But you may find yourself in a situation very similar to this, where you, because of the holiness of God, because of what He expects, what He calls His people to do, you are not permitted to leave the camp to follow someone who is living under God's judgment. Because to do so would be to suggest or hint or intimate that you are more concerned about affirming or approving this person in their sin than you are of affirming and approving the holiness of God. Nobody wants to be there. But Christian, you need to prepare yourself for the fact that there may be a time in which that decision comes to you. Where with fear and trembling and humility you say, it grieves my heart to no end to see what is happening here, to see the direction that you're going, or even to see you experiencing God's discipline and judgment, but there is simply no way that I can lend any support or any comfort or any peace, any false peace, to this sinful life, to this judgment, because God's holiness is at stake. His reputation is on the line. It's damnable when God's people, who are called to be holy as He is holy, give the impression that holiness doesn't matter. It needs to be recognized. We as God's people need to understand that part of the witness that we offer to the world is simply this. If you want blessing and life, it is found in God's presence here. If you choose to go outside of what God has revealed in His Word, if you choose to go outside of the camp, there is nothing but death and destruction for you. And so Aaron and his remaining sons must govern, must submit even their natural inclinations and feelings to God's command. Aaron, you must demonstrate, even in the midst of your grief, something about the holiness and the glory of God. But it's not just the way of life or the conduct or the example in his behavior that Aaron is to set for the people. But as you go down a little bit further, Moses starts by talking with Aaron and his sons. And then in verse 8, it's the Lord who takes a turn speaking to Aaron. And listen to what the Lord says. The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It's a perpetual statute throughout your generations. Why, why were they not allowed to drink when they were on duty? Here's why. 
so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Your job, Aaron, is to rightly discern according to God's Word what He has said and how the people are to worship and how they're to live. If you are not committed to teaching the Word, to instructing people in the Word, how will they continue in the way of life? How will they not also end up exactly as your two sons have ended up? Be clear-headed. Think. Be discerning. Recognize that there is a difference between the things of God and the things of this earth. Live like people who are called to be holy. Live like people who want to be clean. Know that for yourself. Teach that to the people for their good and for their benefit. People, all of this, everything that is given to Aaron in chapter 10, we have perfectly in Christ. Turn to John chapter 17. If Nadab and Baihu were the negative example or were, is the example of what not to do, then of course, no surprise, Christ is the ultimate, the perfect example of what the Lord does expect or what God did expect. Start with me in John 17, 1, and then in verse 4. Remember, Aaron is told by the way he responds, by the way he lives and conducts himself, even in his mind, will, and emotions. He is to glorify and to show honor to the Lord. Jesus says in John 17, 1, as he lifts up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. That's Leviticus 10.3 language. I will be treated as holy, and I will be glorified before the people. This is what Jesus is praying for. Let me glorify you in the eyes of all who watch. Verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Part of what Jesus does in his earthly ministry is that he makes God look glorious. He makes God look holy. He lives by way of example to say, this is what holiness looks like in the flesh. It means being willing to undergo temptation and suffering and to deny yourself if in the road to obedience you can honor the Lord by keeping to His Word, even if that means you miss food. It means praying even when your emotions are screaming out at you, not my will, but your will be done. 
It means showing in your life and in your conduct that there is nothing more important than for people to glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's exactly what Christ did. And if you want to know what it means to live a life of holiness, to live a life that glorifies God, you look to Jesus. You live like Jesus. And then later in Leviticus 10, Aaron, it's not merely in the way that you conduct yourself in this episode, but it's also the way that you discern and teach, the way that you extend or expound on the word of the Lord, his statutes to the people so that they can grow in holiness and righteousness. Look at what Jesus says later. John 17, verse 8. The words which you gave me, I have given to them. In John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. That is, make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is the one who does for you what no one else can do. No one but Jesus can show you what it means to honor and glorify God. No one but Jesus can show you what it means to live a holy life. No one but Jesus ultimately can tell you or demonstrate, can convict you of the truth of God's Word. And all of that has been given to you in the person of Jesus Christ so that you can have God and you can enjoy fellowship with Him confidently, securely, forever. One last thing we might say, building off of Leviticus 10. It ought to be easy, or it ought to be somewhat natural, for us to try to jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament to say, as Jesus himself said in John 5, that all these, talking about the Old Testament Scriptures, all these bear witness to me, right? Christ is there in the Old Testament. He may be hidden or obscured, but in the light of the New Testament, we see more clearly what it was that God is trying to teach His people and how He's trying to direct them to the sufficiency that's available to them in Christ. The one thing that we want to be careful of, though, is that the New Testament also, just like the Old Testament, but the New Testament, in keeping with the Old Testament, also makes it very clear that in light of all that you have in Christ, here now is how you ought to live. It's not enough, in other words, to say or to claim that I have Christ, that I have His example, but I don't follow it. It's not enough to say that I have Christ and His words and His teachings and the words of His apostles and not obey it. Our lives are hidden in Christ, which means that as we live, we are living out Christ. Just two thoughts maybe that we could add to this. Consider for a second, go to Hebrews chapter 12.
Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is, not was, is a consuming fire. How do you think about the God that you serve and the God that you worship? Can I make it maybe a little overly simplistic and say, are you comfortable with God? Familiar with God? Like he's just one of the boys. Just that benevolent grandfather figure. Or do you consider that the God that you worship, the God that we gather together to sing praises to, is still a consuming fire? Psalm 7 says that God is a righteous judge, a judge who has indignation every day. The reason that you and I have not been consumed in the fire of God's wrath like Nadab and Abihu is because Christ absorbed that wrath for us on the cross. It's not because God has gone soft. It's not because God does not care. And it's not because God will not judge in the future. The question for us is, having rightly seen the wrath of God satisfied in the person of His Son, do we consider the high cost and privilege that was given to us now to enter into His presence and to worship Him with reverence and awe? And second, turn a few more pages over to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you were in this passage. First Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's Leviticus language. Just another chapter over, Peter will say that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We have been made priests under the high priest of Christ. Christ was obedient in every way, and now that we have been called to follow him, we are called to be obedient, we are called to be holy. People, listen, there is no holiness, there is no likeness of God in the likeness of Christ apart from obedience to God's word. Don't let anyone try to tell you otherwise. 
That is not to say that your acceptance or your holiness depends on your rate of obedience. But it is to say that a natural consequence, an expectation, a certainty even, of all of those who have been born again into the life of Christ will themselves grow, however slowly, however imperfectly, however fitfully, they will grow in holiness. And if you are not growing in holiness, you need to ask yourself whether or not you actually belong in the congregation of God's people. Is it possible that one day you will stand before God Himself and find that His wrath now is turned to consume you because of your disobedience, because of your rejection of the sacrifice and the work of Christ? If you're here today and you don't know that the holiness of God has been made effective for you through the forgiveness that Jesus offers, you can find any one of our pastors or elders up here at the front, JT, Andy, after the service. I'll be at the back door to talk with you more about how you can know that you have been forgiven and pardoned and that the holiness of Christ now counts for you. But if you're here as a believer in Christ, you claim to be one of his children, please do not be under the mistaken notion that holiness is an option for you. He comes to sanctify us and to make us holy, and it is our joy to grow in that quality of Christ-likeness according to the Father's will. Let's pray. Father, help us to see, remind us that were it not for the perfect work and sacrifice of Christ, there would be no way that any of us could approach you through any religious act or any work of service to be accepted in your sight. We would stand condemned. We would be consumed in the fire of your wrath. So we thank you and we praise you that even on our worst days, we are secure with you. We need not fear your wrath because your wrath has been satisfied and absorbed in the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. Oh, but Father, at the same time, please do not allow us to grow apathetic or disinterested in your holiness. Give us a growing hatred and disgust over sin. Give us a growing desire, a longing even, to be made holy like our Father who has called us into his life, who has adopted us into his family. Make us more like Jesus. Do it by your Spirit so that we would have the evidence of his fruit and his work in our hearts and minds for your glory, for your praise, for our good and our joy. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.